folks are kind of worried and scared on Capitol Hill that if we lean into climate change right now, you know, we're going to, Mitch McConnell's going to get us and it's going to look like we're playing politics uh, with people's livelihoods. Um, and I think that the, our polling suggests that when, you know, when the time is right and when we are on, on a footing where it's, it's appropriate to start talking about what recovery from the pandemic might look like, that, you know, Democrats on Capitol Hill can be confident that uh, the public will stand with them on a number of different clean energy priorities. Are progressive ideas on how to tackle climate change the political poison pill they're often presented to be? Julian Brave Noisecat at Data for Progress says no, they're not. We discuss some of the left-leaning think tank's latest polls in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. On this week's episode, we discuss how data is helping decode where the American public stands on progressive issues, including the Green New Deal and a sustainability-oriented stimulus plan to support the economic recovery from COVID-19. New polling from the organization Data for Progress finds that the green stimulus agenda enjoys a high level of support, and not just within left-leaning circles, but across the political spectrum. Industry bailouts with green obligations attached is another popular position with buy-in from both liberals and conservatives. So why is opposition so strong in Congress? Joining us this week to decipher the data is Julian Brave Noisecat, the Vice President of Policy and Strategy at Data for Progress. But that's not the only title he holds. Julian also serves as Narrative Change Director for the Natural History Museum. He's a correspondent for Real America with George Ramos and a contributing editor at Canadian Geographic. He's also a fellow at the Type Media Center, and his work as a writer has been published in many news outlets, including the New York Times, Vice, Esquire, HuffPost, ESPN's The Undefeated, and more. Julian was raised in Oakland, California, and is a member of the Canem Lake Band and is the descendant of the Lilwat Nation of Mount Curry. My Democrat and Republican co-hosts Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton also took part in this conversation. Brandon is a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy and is currently a partner at Boundary Stone Partners. Shane is a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. We spent some time at the start of this interview understanding what Data for Progress is, its mission, and how it conducts its polling, which offers an interesting view into the organization's theory of change. Then we dig into the polling on the Green Stimulus and the Green New Deal, as well as nationalizing the U.S. oil industry and potential Democratic picks for vice president. Plus, Julian puts a question to Shane about the Republican response to climate change. And as always, we end with our segment, Say Something Nice. After you listen to this episode, or maybe even before, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. Head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening platform and give us a rating and leave us your comments. Political Climate strives to inform you of the latest climate and energy news and present a wide range of perspectives on climate and energy issues. We appreciate you listening and would love to get your feedback as we continue to grow this platform. Finally, 
In these wild and scary times, I want to tell you about another podcast that might help you navigate all the craziness. It's called No Place Like Home. Hosts Mary Ann and Anna Jane tackle the climate crisis with heart, depth, vulnerability, and grace. Listening to them feels like you're sitting with two best friends on a big, breezy porch. This season, called Bring the Light, they're exploring how spirituality helps us find courage and strength to fight the climate crisis. They chat with a Buddhist climate scientist, an evangelical pastor from Puerto Rico, a witch, an indigenous spiritual leader, a Muslim activist, a rabbi, and more. No Place Like Home offers tangible advice on how to fight the climate crisis. But most importantly, it helps us deal with it on an emotional, psychological, and spiritual level. Be sure to check it out wherever you get podcasts. Now, let's turn to our interview with Julian Brave Noisecat. Hi, Julian. Thank you very much for coming on Political Climate. How are you doing today in these crazy times? Uh, I'm doing I'm doing well, given the circumstances. Um, yeah. Yeah. In the same spot in my uh, one-bedroom apartment, I've been planted at for the last two months. So, <laughs> Staying stationary. Well, we're here to talk about Data for Progress, your work, uh, including uh, some of the work you've done on indigenous communities. But we really want to dial in on some of the new polling that you've released uh, on the green stimulus. Uh, but to start, I wanted to ask you, you know, what is data for progress for people who may not know? And how is it different from other polling firms? Is there a certain philosophy driving it or a mission? How would you describe that? So data for progress is a think tank, a lefty think tank that uh, integrates polling with policy analysis, uh, multidisciplinary research, and occasionally economic modeling to basically line up a research agenda with the needs of the progressive movement, uh, including progressive politicians, uh, organizations, and uh, like sort of grassroots groups that are that are on the ground actually doing doing the work. We sort of view ourselves as a resource for the progressive movement, but we also, because we basically, if you think about politics as a market, we've done a lot of the market research. You know, we we can also sometimes help people make. Um, strategic decisions about what they should and shouldn't prioritize, how they should talk about their issues, and all of that. Hey, Julian, this is Brandon. Um, for our audience, uh, they say in politics, you come for the candidate uh, and stay for uh, the people uh, in a campaign. Uh, not, Julian, the free, not the free pizza? <laughs> Julian, I met through the Elizabeth Warren uh, campaign, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Uh, tell me a little bit, you know, Data for Progress has a good track record, uh, from my understanding, from 2016 and that general, general election and the 2020 primary. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And also, are you polling to uh, lead people to a certain answer uh, to promote that, or do you poll to actually get the truth and then figure out how to weave that into the narrative that you want. You know, data for progress is, hasn't actually been around for that long. So we were, I think we were like founded in like 2018 or so. So like some of our researchers and our founder, like Sean, uh, were doing some work around 2016 and actually way back in 2015, Sean wrote a thing about why progressives should support Senator Sanders, um, president presidential campaign in 2016. Uh, but basically, like our our organization uh, has developed a text to web mobile 
polling technology, basically that allows us to field our surveys uh, via text messages to voters. And because of that, we're able to collect way more data than basically all of our competitors, which basically means that we are able to come fairly close to, to calling elections. And in the 2020 primary, this allowed us to be the most accurate pollster you know, of, of the Democratic primary uh, based upon sort of the analysis of different, different folks, which was really cool. Uh, and basically, the theory there is that uh, if, you know, if we are able to accurately call elections, then people should trust our uh, issue area specific polling. You know, if you trust that we are able to, you know, accurately predict who's going to win the Iowa primary and, you know, come pretty close to uh, putting our finger on what the margin will be, then you should also trust our numbers on the Green New Deal or Medicare for All or, um, you know, tuition-free college or any of these other, uh, any of these other progressive issues that we, that we pull. So we talk a lot on this show about communication and theories of change. So I want to build on Brandon's question there and spend a little more time on this and understanding the framing. I read an article recently in Politico with Data for Progress founder Sean McElwee, where he talked about the importance of not ignoring the nitty gritty of the political process. He also talked about coalition building. So in that theme, is it accurate to say that Data for Progress is left-leaning, but its work doesn't remain solely within the left-leaning echo chamber? Or maybe another way to put it is, would you say that your data fits with a predetermined progressive agenda? Or is it more that you let the data on progressive issues speak for itself and then play into the political strategy from there? I don't know if it's so clearly like a one-two step on that. Like, you know, we, we look at the data and then we figure out a narrative. But uh, basically, you know, I think that, you know, I, I would identify as like a pretty significant left-leaning person. I'm, you know, an indigenous man who grew up in Oakland, California, you know, hearing about the Black Panthers and the Indians of all tribes, and the United Farm, Farm Workers and all that sort of stuff. And I think that most folks who have my ideological leanings would end up doing, you know, the sort of the, the the general trajectory for folks on the left in politics is to get involved with like organizing and maybe communications and, and stuff like that. I think it's quite unusual for folks who, you know, are interested in more socialist leading ideas to use something like polling, you know, something that is often viewed as like the ideological means of like elite politics uh, production. And I think that that's sort of what makes us a little bit different is that we're we're using these tools of elite persuasion um, and also like research and stuff like that for an agenda that that often has not had them as often. Like becoming a pollster basically is a unique decision to make if you're a if you're a, a lefty. Julian, this is Shane, and I, I have a, a couple sort of deep dive follow up questions. But on the on the introductory side, just to press on on Brandon's question a little bit, when you set out to to do a survey, are you trying to get data that can convince uh, people to behave in the way that you want them to behave, or are you trying to get data to convince the progressive movement? how they should message their platform. I, I just want to, I want to better understand is, you know, when industry polls, you know what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to show support for whatever it is that they want. Um, and, and I'm curious if your if your polling is based more on trying to drive support for your objectives, or if it's, it's trying to help the people who share your objectives understand which messaging is most effective and stuff like that. 
So there's like different kinds of polling, right? So I, I guess I'm kind of having a hard time answering your question because there's different, there's, you're actually kind of asking two different questions, right? So like we can do message tests that help us identify the best way to talk about a particular issue or agenda. And that's one thing. And that's like basically identifying like out of eight, 10, six, nine, whatever arguments, like what what are the best ones that we should be using when we're pitching this to particular demographics or to, or to voters generally. Um, and so that's something where, you know, we're trying to use our, uh, you know, survey capacity to help uh, progressives and Democrats, like identify the most effective way to talk about their issues in a campaign. On the other hand, right, there's like polling on issues. And, you know, I, I will be very forthright in saying that, like, you know, we have progress in our name, we are a pretty left leaning organization. And so it's not like we don't have an agenda. Um, but, you know, at the same time as we obviously want progressive issues to rise to the fore in the Democratic Party, you know, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna trust us if they think that our numbers are unreliable, if they think that we are, you know, constructing public opinion just to get at the answers that they want, so, or that we want. So it's a, it's a kind of a combination of the two. Like on the one hand, you know, we want data that's reliable, that people can trust to help inform pretty high stakes decisions. You know, if you're going to stick your neck out on a piece of legislation that is controversial, that's going to be on cable news, and you're like a frontline Democrat or a Democratic senator in a red state, like you want to be sure that the numbers that you're using to, to partially make that decision on where the public stands are reliable numbers, right? And so if we want to be, you know, someone who is turned to in those moments uh, by politicians, by movements, by journalists, like you want your numbers to be reliable. On the other hand, you know, there are uh, ways in which you can use surveys and, and social science and research to, you know, attack some of these uh, underlying biases in our political system that hurt progressives. So one of the most uh, prominent ones that we, you know, are setting out to uh, take on is the notion that progressive policies are inherently less popular that if you run on them, particularly in like swing districts, um, you know, that you are going to lose, uh, that they're bad for the economy, that they're bad for jobs, that they're going to burden households with, you know, higher taxes and more costs on their energy bill or whatever. Um, and we think that we can use, you know, research like empirical data to disprove uh, many of those sort of biases that, that, that are a real impediment to the progressive agenda here in DC. And occasionally we could use we could use those tools also to help progressives, you know, get our uh, get what we want uh, more effectively, the better way to talk about our issues, you know, the better parts of our agenda to prioritize when we're running on elections. Um, and, you know, the places where that might actually uh, overlap with uh, sort of the needs and desires of, of the rest of the party and, and of of an, an electorate where you need to figure out how to put together a majority. Well, we're spending some time on this because we spend a lot of time on this show thinking about messaging, about policy initiatives, about consensus building, what the best pathway to that is, theories of change. So appreciate you sort of 
taking a second to sort of set the stage there because, uh, yeah, we're in this moment where there's, I think, some tension around where information comes from and trusting the numbers. I also think Data for Progress is doing something unique. So it was helpful to get a sense of how the organization operates and the kind of change you're looking to make. So with that, I think we'll maybe get into it a little bit more. Um, I wanted to talk about this new polling data that you worked on, Julian. Um, the first uh, set is around the green stimulus. So can you do a little bit more of a breakdown of what exactly you found with this polling? Yeah, so firstly, I think just so that uh, your listeners are aware, there is an ongoing conversation, particularly among climate and environmental advocates and some uh, members of Congress, about what it would look like to um, get uh, green priorities into the stimulus. So this is like, you know, tax credits for renewable energy. This is like funding for the low income housing energy assistance program or the weatherization assistance program, uh, funding for infrastructure that is, uh, that is clean and green, all of those sorts of things. Uh, this is like a, a brewing discussion in DC and, and, and in sort of the progressive and environmental spaces uh, about what it might look like, what it's safe to get back to work, um, to rebuild in a way that also helps us, you know, strengthen the social safety net and fight things like, like climate change. And so to sort of get out ahead of that conversation, we, you know, designed uh, a survey, a set of surveys, actually, to sort of test support for a number of uh, green priorities that could be included in future rounds of the stimulus. Um, and the way that we've, we've started designing our surveys is we run the same set of questions one time without partisan framing. So this is basically uh, a question that would just say, Congress is considering a stimulus package to address coronavirus and economic fallout from the pandemic. For each of the following potential components of the package, please indicate if you support or oppose them. And then we run the same set of questions again, but the second time uh, we run them with the most likely partisan arguments. So if say if we were going to have it out on cable news, the Democratic talking point would be, you know, A, and the Republican talking point would be B. Uh, and then where would approximately, you know, public opinion fall in that circumstance where, you know, folks are activated on their partisanship, uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans put forward what they view as their strongest argument, where would we see support fall at that point? Because, of course, you know, in theory, uh, you know, public opinion and support for a lot of these things like the Green New Deal uh, can be quite high before they get polarized. But after we've really had it out, you know, in the media it's very unlikely that you're going to see a, a large margin of, of support for any policy simply because, uh, you know, partisanship and, and the media plays a significant role in shaping the opinions of the public on these matters. Um, and so what we found, which was quite encouraging, was that for um, a number of priorities, green priorities that could end up in, in stimulus, uh, there was robust public support for, for, for all of them. Uh, and that even once you, you know, applied a partisan framing to those same set of, of policies, uh, they were still above water. Of course, the margin of support shrinks significantly from, uh, you know, when it's when it's not framed in partisan terms to when it is framed in partisan terms. But even once we've had it out, uh, even if we had it out on on cable news about these about these issues, we would we we would expect that um, the public, a majority of the public or a plurality of the public would still be. Uh, would still be on our side, which is quite encouraging because, you know, folks are kind of worried and scared on Capitol Hill that if we lean into climate change right now, 
you know, we're going to, Mitch McConnell's going to get us and it's going to look like we're playing politics uh, with people's livelihoods. Um, and I think that the, our polling suggests that when, you know, when the time is right and when we are on, on a footing where it's, it's appropriate to start talking about what recovery from the pandemic might look like, that, you know, Democrats on Capitol Hill can be confident that uh, the public will stand with them on a number of different clean energy priorities. Julian, this is Shane, and, and I wanted to dig a little bit deeper on that point. So you mentioned um, renewable energy tax credits. You mentioned, I think, LIHEAP and, and weatherization. And, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I'm sure the polling reflects that most people feel that way. I'm trying to differentiate in my head when you look at expenditures. So I think any rational person would say that after what we're going through as as a country, uh, any expenditures moving forward should promote sustainability and, and they should promote equity. And I think the programs you mentioned do those things and, and certainly we'll be right there fighting uh, beside the progressive movement to, to achieve those. What I get more concerned about, and, and please let me know if I misunderstood you know, what I saw in the polling, but one of the primary concerns with conservatives right now, and I'm, I'm one of them, frankly, uh, is that while no one wanted this, I'm not one of those conspiracy theorists who say, oh, this this is people trying to trick us. Well, no one wanted this, what's happening. I do think there's a, a genuine fear that the government, and that can be state and federal level, is using the cir- circumstances that we're in to seize and exercise a little bit more control over your daily lives than they otherwise would. And I just mean, most of us would not listen if the government told us we couldn't leave our homes. Most of us would not listen if the government told us we couldn't eat out or we couldn't be within six feet of friends. So there is more you know, command and control at this point. And my concern is that if this if this is used, these circumstances are used not not to promote you know spending policies that reflect a more sustainable society, which I agree with. But if it's used as a pretext to increase government equity stakes in private industry, government control, uh, government regulations on industries that traditionally operate you know more freely, um, it could be a big par- problem in the, in the partisan sphere and make these objectives far more difficult to achieve. In the future, and what I keep coming back to, and I'll, I'll stop droning after this, is that if a failing business, uh, you know, if the oil industry was failing on its own and needed government assistance, and the government has every right to say, if you want us to prop you up, you need to start playing by a different set of rules that's more sustainable, uh, that promotes equity, uh, that reduces emissions, and all those sorts of things. But if the government forces a business closed and then says, in order to reopen, we're going to own you and you're going to behave differently. Do you guys fear that that will blow back on, you know, as authoritarianism or as something that that widens the climate divide where, you know, skeptical climate deniers or, or conservatives who are not pro-climate would say, see, this is exactly what I thought. They want to take control of the economy. That's the real goal here. Yeah. So, I mean, I think on the so let's let's just start at the sort of 30,000 foot level. And I would actually argue that from the 30,000 foot level on the issue of climate change, we have found in our surveys, which have been sort of corroborated by other researchers, uh, particularly the Global Strategies Group and Center for American Progress, data that basically shows that Republicans are uniquely vulnerable on the issue of climate change. So about a month ago, we published a study that showed that 2016 Trump voters who are unsure how they're going to vote in 2020 are uniquely persuadable on climate change above all other issues. So, you know, on the issue itself, just just before we even get into sort of like the ideological differences between the role of 
government on how we would take on climate change. Um, on the issue itself, I think that Democrats have are on really solid ground, particularly headed into an election against a, a president and a party that has described climate change as a quote unquote hoax invented by the Chinese. So I, I firstly, I would say that like prioritizing climate change in general is a very effective uh, strategy. And then I would say that, you know, you're not wrong that folks, we see in our surveys that folks uh, are most concerned on climate change about things like, are they going to take away my pickup truck? Are they going to take away, you know, is the government going to come and, you know, keep me from eating hamburgers? Like, it is true that that those kinds of interventions are the ones that are most likely uh, to make conservatives in particular um, you know, flighty and is also most likely the the pain point that Republicans are going to identify on these issues once, you know, we start really debating them. But at the same time, you know, we have in uh, in our in many of our polls, and this is not unique to climate change, actually, uh, found that voters are are more supportive than one would think, given the way that the discourse on this exists in the media of things like you know, significant government intervention into the economy to strengthen the social safety net. They're also more supportive than you'd, you'd, you'd think around things like the government taking an ownership stake in companies uh, that it bails out. You know, now is that is that as supportive as people are of things like clean water infrastructure, which is like literally the most popular democratic priority you could dream of? Uh, are they as supportive of that as they are of like, you know, uh, public option for broadband? No, they're not. But, you know, uh, I think that, you know, we, we many of us probably exist in a media environment where uh, the notion that the government would own an energy company or anything like that sounds an awful lot like Venezuela style socialism. But if you look at the way that voters look at these issues, they're actually much more supportive of them uh, than you'd expect. So, for example, on something as 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 left wing as uh, public ownership of fossil fuel companies, basically nationalizing fossil fuel companies, even with partisan arguments on it, our surveys found uh, that the public was evenly split in, in support and opposition, which is not, I think, what people would expect. I think people would, would mostly expect that to be um, such an out there left wing, uh, you know, communist sounding idea that most people would would not support it. But actually, we found that 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 there is more support than you'd expect. I would love to hear more on that point because I have no, you know, polling or, of course, anything like that to, to back up my position. But we've worked for years to try to get conservatives and Republicans to understand that addressing climate change is something that all voters want, not just liberal voters, and that it's something that all people need, uh, not just liberal uh, people. So I, I'm excited about that concept, but it's been an uphill climb, to be honest. And you have to demonstrate, you know, to people that there's economic opportunity here. This is not meant to hurt people. This is meant to help people. And it's been a multi-year sort of, of process. And, and many would tell you that that conservatives and Republicans, you know, still aren't far enough along. So my, my real fear is that if, if the next message is um, we can do this and what it requires is the government to take control of the energy sector. I don't know how you come back from that. I'm not. I'm not. You know, yeah, doubting I mean, your polling not, your numbers. You're putting. But. You're not. You're putting. You're putting words in my mouth on that one because this is also. We pulled it for the point to make the point that like even the most extreme parts of the the most seemingly extreme parts of the agenda are um, not underwater in the way that people would expect, given you know the history of anti-communism and 
all that in this country. But it's also, you know, it's not the top of my agenda. It's not what I would suggest people should put in a green as a green priority and stimulus. It's I think I would categorize it as one of the expanding the um, sort of territory of the conversation towards the left sort of bucket at the same time as I know that like you couldn't get five votes on Capitol Hill for something like nationalizing the fossil fuel industry. So it's there's no real reason to advocate it beyond as an idea in, you know, sort of the policy press. So basically what I'm saying is that like, yeah, to your point, like this is actually not the thing that we should go and sell to voters um, unless the voters you're talking to are like Jacobin readers or like DSA kids in Brooklyn. But the point still stands that like, it's actually, you know, some of these more uh, left-wing ideas, which should be viewed as pretty left-wing, you know, are not nearly as uh, contentious or or unpopular as as one might expect. You know, what is popular to your point about like this is a big opportunity is talking about you know sort of the bread and butter of this issue, talking about jobs, talking about economic growth, talking about infrastructure. So the interesting finding that we've we've had in a lot of our polling is that actually. You know, if you think about the Green New Deal as sort of a New Deal style, big government uh, sort of investment into the economy, one that's going to pay dividends later in the form of, you know, a safer environment and uh, a more fair economy. That's actually a very popular way to talk about the issue of climate change. It might even be the most popular way for Democrats to talk about the issue. Uh, and so when you remove sort of the, the brand name, right, of the Green New Deal, and focus on the substance of, of the stuff that is the best thing to push to the most number of voters. The Green New Deal actually seems to have identified it in a lot of ways, uh, which I find to be very interesting for, you know, again, like a policy and approach that has been coded as, you know, very left wing and very partisan and very contentious in the press. Julian, your polling is showing, uh, you know, broad uh, public support for many of these climate policies then why aren't Democrats on Capitol Hill fighting harder for them? Why aren't they drawing a line in some of these pieces of legislation and saying, we're not going to pass this without these policies included? You know, Brandon, I think that's a really good question. I think that on the one hand, our polling suggests that this is a very favorable issue for Democrats in an election year. On the other hand, I think that timing is a relevant question particularly on the legislative side, but also not, you know, in the in the public opinion side. Um, so we've started fielding a, a tracker poll that includes a question about uh, whether respondents think that Congress should prioritize relief or infrastructure. And part of our thinking there is that not only do you want to see, you know, the economists and the epidemiologists talking about, you know, the need to start reopening the economy and, and building infrastructure before you do that, you also probably want to see a shift in public opinion towards those, um, towards that kind of a footing. And, you know, right now, I don't think it's likely that we would see um, green priorities unless they were part of a broader sort of infrastructure uh, package. So I, I think basically my my perspective on this would be, and, you know, I, I my perspective sort of changes and shifts over time as I get more information. But right now, my perspective would be that when you choose to have the fight really matters, um, both for reasons related to public opinion, but also related to, you know, the politics of Capitol Hill and, and what's going on in the press. But that when we choose to finally stand and have that fight and stop 
you know, running from the Green New Deal attacks, uh, I actually feel fairly confident that if we really stand up and say what we think, that Democrats are 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 very well poised to to win uh, a debate that's focused on climate change and the economy. Julian, if you had um, Democrats uh, leadership or, or some sort of prominent Democrats come to you right now and say, "Hey, we're ready for this fight. We think we can get something good in the upcoming you know stimulus bill." We are also six months out from an election and we don't want to take too much risk. What does your polling reflect or the key policy priorities we should try to insert in this near term bill? Uh, what would you advocate for? You know, I, uh, I think that it would be really important that in the near term, we uh, provide funding for um, some shovel ready programs. Uh, so I think that some of the, uh, you know, smaller parts of the agenda might be might be things that are popular. I'm just looking through my graphs right now. Things that really pop for us are anything related to agriculture. So I think relief uh, for farmers that was tied to you know supporting them with uh, more sustainable and environmentally friendly sort of farming practices, maybe no-till soil uh, stuff or you know, stuff like, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, LIHEAP and the Weatherization Assistance Program, you know, renewable energy tax credits. Um, I think all of those things are are very safe. You can even talk about a lot of them as being bipartisan uh, policies. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell got up and lambasted uh, renewable energy tax credits, something that is a genuinely bipartisan policy as, you know, uh, a Green New Deal. Uh, when we were de- debating the CARES Act, and even like if they become sort of polarized parts of the agenda, um, you know things that Mitch McConnell decides to single out and you know accuse us of holding out to fund our radical Green New Deal. You know I think that they are actually pretty popular things. You know in the bigger picture, uh, say we have this fight after November and Democrats have won the White House and maybe the Senate or you know have have. Uh, retaking one of those things. Um, you know, I think that something around like uh, a climate conservation core, for example, uh, could be could be something that we would be worth fighting for, you know, something like an infrastructure bank uh, that uh, functions when Democrats are in power as like a climate bank or a green bank uh, would be something that could be uh, quite popular and worth fighting for. And then, you know, more generally, uh, I think that like talking about, uh, particularly in this moment, you know, sort of beyond the polling, talking about the jobs potential of a lot of these programs uh, is going to be a really important selling point with, you know, uh, millions and millions of Americans out of work. In some ways, Shane, I feel like the question goes to you and your read on the Republican side of the aisle, because at least according to data for Progress's data, things like a conservation core where you put people to work all across the country on various sustainability initiatives. I think Jay Inslee initially proposed the idea. So it, it is definitely rooted in the progressive movement. But when it polls, it has bipartisan support. So, I mean, Shane, you like jobs. You obviously know that clean air, clean water is good for everyone. Why wouldn't Republicans get on board with that? Why does it have to wait until Democrats control all, all parts of government, do you think? I don't think they do. I mean, that's why I, actually why I was curious to hear what the polling reflected, because I think when you look at some of the things that Julian mentioned, I, th- I think it's going to be very, very difficult for Republicans um, not to you know, promote or at very least include some clean energy tax credits. 
I think some of the EV related programs are back in play. I know that, you know, those struggled in the in the last tax tax extender bill. I think any new program, so like a conservation corps or something like that, in my opinion, is gonna be, you know, unachievable or an incredibly steep uphill climb. But reinvigorating, adding funding to or reauthorizing existing programs. Uh, once Republicans start to see some of the data that's come out over the last couple months, E2 did a nice report on this uh, with clean energy jobs, energy efficiency jobs lost. Uh, they're going to, I think, begin to understand, and I hope generally, not just right now, that these are jobs. These are white collar jobs. They're blue collar jobs. They're union jobs. They're non-union jobs. These are jobs in their states and communities. And a lot of them, frankly, are in red states and red districts. So I, I do think that those things are going to be easier to achieve. I, I was curious if, if if my instincts were consistent with with the polling that, that Data for Progress has. Yeah. I mean, I think that the problem that we face, though, is that like the... Republican Party is like to the right of even like the oil and gas industry on climate. Um, and like, you know, they attack the, as I said, like Mitch McConnell called renewable energy tax credits, you know, Green New Deal style socialism. He attacked uh, attacking like emissions reductions, reducing emissions from the airlines, you know, as part of a bailout, uh, also as like a Green New Deal style socialism thing. and. You know, I just, I guess, like, the part of the reason why I don't think that some of this stuff is really going to change that much maybe until November is I think that, like, Republicans might have to really pay a price for uh, their very backward stance on this stuff before they, you know, even, you know, come around on on some of the small ball uh, parts of the agenda, which, you know, I think is quite unfortunate. But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, that's like... There's a very interesting story to be told here about how, you know, the agenda of climate denial, like the Republican Party overshot their patrons on that one, right? Like they overshot ExxonMobil on climate denial. And I think that that's a very fascinating story and has a lot to do with the insanity of our politics on this issue right now. I think the nuance is going to be really important there, right? I do think that you're right that calling, you know, an ITC extension of Green New Deal style socialism is is an absurd proposition. Um, I think he was able to do that because of, as you mentioned, the airline emission stuff. I think, you know, most Republicans, at least that I interact with, accept, understand, and even in many cases want um, tax extenders, tax credits for for green technologies, um, renewable energy. I do think that in the middle of a pandemic, trying to change the way the entire airline industry works as, as sort of ransom to keep them in business allowed McConnell to take that, that, that lack of nuance and, and throw the whole thing out. Uh, I don't know. I mean, when you have a, an industry that is like the largest growing share of global emissions, like fastest growing, I mean, and they're coming to the federal government asking for a bailout. I think that it's just good government and good policymaking to, you know, attach some emissions reductions to the fact that they're going to be getting a whole bunch of taxpayer money. Like that to me seems like a very responsible thing to do. And the notion that that gets framed, you know, as a government takeover or, you know, radical restructuring of the way that the aviation industry works, um, to me, I think feels like a bad faith argument and you know further suggestion that like republicans you know are 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 way out on on the limb on this one and are willing to double down when they're way out on the limb and that they might not change their tune until they see some real blowback from it you know like think about what it would take to turn their whole party into someone like a desantis 
there's also some precedent for that. When we did the Recovery Act under Obama and TARP, uh, we, in bailing out the auto industry, forced them to move to electrification. And that's been very good for them because otherwise we'll be buying all of our vehicles from China. And airlines already have regulations in Europe. It's not like they're not used to this being a part of policymaking. <laughs> so I have three quick questions for Julian. Um, I, we could do this all day, so it's been hard to, to uh, <laughs> keep it to an hour. Um, Julian, number one, uh, in the polling, are you what impact is COVID having on voters' views sort of broadly? Is this changing the way they view climate and government? Number two, do we have to change the brand of the Green New Deal to get these policies done, in your view? Do we have to change the name? Um, or how do you think about that? And then finally, number three, I'm very curious in your poll. I know the answer, but I just want you to say it. Who was the top pick amongst Democratic voters for vice president? <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll take those. Uh, I'll take the last one first because it's like the, the funnest and simplest. Um, voters really like Elizabeth Warren for vice president, according to our polling. Yeah, so so I think that uh, Warren would be a great vice president pick for Joe Biden. You know, uh, I think that there's a lot going on there beyond just what the polling says. But, you know, insofar as polling matters and there's something that they should look at, I think Warren would be a, a pretty smart pick. And, you know, as a progressive, I think that uh, I've been actually surprised at how few progressives have even come out saying that he should pick uh, Elizabeth Warren. She's the second most progressive senator. And it would be basically, in my view, like the progressive fox guarding the capitalist henhouse uh, down on 1600 Pennsylvania. So I don't see why that wouldn't be a slam dunk for all of us. But, you know, maybe I'm out on a limb here. What was it? So the first question was about uh, how are views shifting amidst the coronavirus, correct? COVID impact on voters' views. Yeah. So, I mean, before the pandemic, so the, the folks who really are great on, you know, longitudinal Tudinal polling, uh, like the Pew Research Center, uh, who basically ask the the reason they're so good about this is that they've been asking the same question, you know, for years and years without changing the wording, and that allows you to really sh see the shifts in public opinion over a long period of time. They came out with way before the pandemic, um, you know, a major a poll showing that uh, you know support for a liberal government, you know, a more active role for government in the economy uh, was higher in 2019 than it has been since they first started doing the polling in the late 60s. Um, so that's all to say that I think that in general, uh, public views of, you know, a more social towards a more social democratic form of, of government are, are shifting in that direction. Um, and in the pandemic, you know, it's hard to hard to say whether this will stick after the pandemic. But at least while we're in the pandemic, we've seen uh, support for a whole bunch of uh, quite progressive uh, policies that entail significant government intervention into the economy, you know, shoot up by like 10 points. Uh, things like, you know, not just the stuff that's been in the CARES Act, but things like canceling rent, uh, things like suspending debt payments, um, and also things like, you know, green jobs and the Green New Deal. Those have both also significantly sh shot up during during this pandemic. Um, whether that will stick after the pandemic, I think, is a, an interesting question. I obviously hope that, you know, people are still in the mood for a uh, more robust uh, welfare state. Uh, and, you know, if we're going to take on climate change, I hope that they're in the mood for, you know, some uh, industrial policy and government intervention to, you know, uh, 
put a little bit more uh, steam in the sort of clean energy and clean technology sectors. Um, but, you know, at least during this pandemic, it, it's been very interesting to see how many, um, you know, left wing ideas uh, have 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 gained in support. And then there was a second question. I can't remember. There was three that were thrown at me. The Green New Deal brand to get the policies within oh, the Green New Deal. Right. Like, is it just question. so torched that we have to change the name or what, what do you think we need to do? This is a so whether we should change the Green New Deal brand is a really interesting question. It's one that I think about quite often. Uh, you know, on the one hand, the Green New Deal was successful, uniquely successful, I'd say, in sort of breaking through and creating, um, you know, an, an agenda and a slogan for progressives to rally around and to shift the whole conversation in a way that I think drove a lot of the ambition uh, that we saw in in Democratic candidates' climate plans during the primary. So I think that it was a very successful uh, narrative and policy intervention. At the same time, I think that we need to ask whether we care more about the brand or we care more about the substance of the conversation. And I think that almost everybody would say that it's really the substance that matters more. And the difficulty that we face with the Green New Deal is, is twofold. Um, on Capitol Hill, the, the Green New Deal has always been contentious. It began with a sit-in in the Speaker's office. Uh, and unfortunately, I think folks who are on the Green New Deal side of the advocacy, uh, like myself, we have not, you know, done enough, I'd say, to educate members on what the Green New Deal, uh, should be and can be and, and done enough to really sort of drive forward a, a Green New Deal, you know, positive agenda on Capitol Hill in a way that would make, um, you know, the full, the full caucus sort of supportive of the idea. So I think that we, uh, have a, a pretty steep climb on Capitol Hill. Among voters, we don't have as steep of a climb. We've found again and again uh, robust support for the Green New Deal. When you when you give it a very fair wording on a survey, people still say that they support it. Um, the issue that we have seen is that Republicans know a little bit more, are, are, know that they're supposed to oppose the Green New Deal, and they know their talking points against it because they've been fed them for a year now on Fox News. Whereas, you know, progressives and, and Democrats support the Green New Deal. They like the idea, you know, they anything that has to do with uh, clean energy and infrastructure and jobs is something that they will get behind. Um, but they're a little bit more divided because in, in large part, you know, the most prominent messengers who talk to them via MSNBC, whether that be the talking heads or, you know, folks like Speaker Pelosi, you know, have, have referred to the Green New Deal as like the quote unquote green dream or whatever. And so my general perspective would be that at the end of the day, whatever we pass on climate change, uh, whatever we try to get 51 votes on in the Senate probably won't be called a Green New Deal, but uh, should uh, be very much reflective of some of the core sort of principles and ideas that have animated the Green New Deal and brought it to the fore. So we will eventually, in my view, probably have to pivot off of the Green New Deal um, but in many ways, the Green New Deal was kind of like the the rocket that sort of launched us into hopefully the stratosphere and then hopes, hopefully helps us get to the place where, you know, we can pass a federal climate bill or two. 
All right, Julian, I wanted to end by um, switching to a slightly different issue. I mean, Brandon mentioned coronavirus, uh, but I wanted to bring this in because we looked closely at how coronavirus is affecting the African-American community in our last episode, and it's truly wreaked havoc there. There's disproportionate death rates. And I know that the uh, Native American community is also facing similar issues. I know you've written a lot about uh, indigenous rights and the issues that those communities are facing even before the pandemic. I want to get a read on now what you're seeing happening in these communities. How are they being affected by coronavirus? And are there links and maybe lessons here when it comes to climate and energy issues? Yeah, so the term of art that people use to talk about the communities that are most impacted by poverty, pollution, and climate change is frontline communities. This is this is the term that uh, advocates and policy wonks use to refer to uh, the folks who live on the hazardous edge of pollution, uh, warming, and 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 poverty. The one of the things that the coronavirus, uh, one of the many things that the coronavirus has exposed, is that many of the same communities that are you know uh, polluted, poor, and impacted by warming are also most vulnerable to the coronavirus in large part because there's a correlation between long-term, there's a Harvard study that showed there's a correlation between long-term exposure to air pollution and uh, vulnerability to the coronavirus. Uh, and the reason why you know some communities live with uh, less clean air is that they you know, live in places where uh, due to redlining, and you know federal policies uh they were situated right next to factories they were you know the the when we built out the freeways we built the freeways through black neighborhoods and all those cars over the years lead to higher rates of asthma and also apparently you know more susceptibility to um or more vulnerability to the coronavirus in indian country you know uh which is predominantly if we're talking about sort of folks who live on reservations is a predominantly rural population uh, the things that make folks more vulnerable uh, in many of the same ways that that black communities have have shown to be more vulnerable are things like, you know, lack of access to adequate health care. You know, many uh, communities live a pretty uh, long distance from uh, the nearest sort of health center. And, and even if they have a health center nearby, you know, it's not a fully staffed hospital. It's not the kind of place where you could go and there would even be uh, ventilators. There might not even be sort of uh, trauma specialists or, or things like that. Uh, it's also things like, uh, you know, higher rates of obesity because, you know, for example, uh, the Navajo Nation uh, in Arizona, New Mexico has become a hotspot of the coronavirus. And it's a, a landmass that's actually the size of West Virginia, uh, but it has only 13 grocery stores in, in that entire area. And that means that it's a lot harder to get healthy food if you live on the Navajo Nation, which means that you know folks uh, live with higher rates of obesity and and diabetes, which also correlates with more vulnerability to the coronavirus. And what's really sort of I, I think especially painful for for Native communities who live disproportionately uh, with this tragedy is that there were over 370 treaties that were negotiated between tribes and the United States government and ratified by Congress. The, the, the Constitution actually describes them as the quote-unquote highest law of the land. 
yet, and, and all those treaties actually uh, included uh, a provision that guaranteed healthcare and medicine for tribal nations. This was actually part of the agreement that the federal government struck between tribes uh, to allow them to you know, have access to all this land that is basically made up the United States now. Despite the fact that treaties include this provision, you know, tribes do not get anywhere near the parity of health care that the rest of United States citizens get. Uh, I was actually looking at the data just the other day and funding for the Indian Health Service, which is the predominant health care provider in Indian country, is about $4,000 per patient, which if you compare that to the funding per patient in Medicare, uh, which is $13,000, is like less than a third of the money. So we're spending 33 cents on the dollar to take care of Native people as we do to take care of the country's elderly. Uh, and so I think that those deep, deep inequities, which can be traced to, you know, all the way back to treaties that have not been honored, can be traced back to the trauma, uh, which included health impacts of, you know, the dispossession of Native land, are still showing up in uh, the positive cases and deaths from the coronavirus that are happening in, in tribal communities at a rate that is much higher than the general population. And so when we think about issues like the coronavirus or environmental pollution or climate change, I think that we need to firstly be you know, doing more uh, data collection around these issues to understand the scope and scale of the problem uh, with sort of geographic and racial specificity to understand what exactly is happening in places like the Navajo Nation, like Detroit, uh, like Oakland, where I grew up, but also uh, you know, thinking about what that means uh, in terms of, you know, policy, what that means in terms of what communities we should be investing in first when it comes time to clean up that pollution, when it comes time to build green infrastructure, when it comes time to, you know, make sure that folks have jobs in the industries of the future. Uh, and my, one of my hopes uh, is that coming out of this really, really, really horrible pandemic, is that lawmakers uh, and folks who think about these issues uh, will recognize the disproportionate burden faced by those communities and that when it comes time to, to write laws and, and policy, uh, that we will be prioritizing investment in those communities. I want to try one last thing here before we go. Um, you know, it's, I think one really great thing about political climate is it's very rare to bring a frontline advocate like Julian uh, into a conversation with a Paul Ryan conservative like Shane. So, Julian, do you have any? Do you have any questions for Shane that you've always like been dying to ask, like a <laughs> Paul Ryan conservative? I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, so my one of the things that I always wonder is there are some you know sort of center right organizations that work on climate change, and I think you know do a decent job. Uh, the Niskanen Center is one of them, for example. Uh, you know, the Climate Leadership Council has their carbon, uh, their cap and dividend uh, proposal. But the thing that I find so fascinating is that there's like this energy uh, around our priorities on the right side of the aisle, but it doesn't seem like anybody listens to them. Um, so my question would be like, how do we get to a world where like the Carlos Curbelos, the former member of Congress from Florida who got pushed out, um, you know, actually have a, a say and voice in the party? Like, how do we get from this place of denial, sort of holding the conversation and bullying everybody else 
out of the conversation in, in, in Republican sphere to a place where there's actually some, uh, you know, interlocutors for Democrats to work with on these, on these priorities. Yeah, I've got, I've got three answers to that question. And as you can imagine, um, it's something that I think about pretty much all day, every day, both because I'm interested in, cause it's my job. And, um, I love Joseph Mashkut over at uh, Niskasen uh, as well, and, and we're hoping to have him on, just kind of flagging that for listeners. But I think there's there's three you know key components, and I'll, I'll blame the first two on the right and, and the third on the left. Um, one is that uh, the the advocates on the right, so whether you're talking about some of these you know centrist right leaning think tanks, or whether you're talking about even young advocates who care about the environment and climate, they're willing to talk about how you as we you know discussed earlier in this in this uh, episode how you allocate funding how you drive capital how you use um currently available you know economic tools to provide some aid or some assistance or just you know some financing for for clean energy very few if any are really willing to talk about actual regulation or, or, or program, right? So when you talk about a clean energy standard, which really, you know, shouldn't be that controversial because as long as you don't make it overly restrictive, it, it is actually, in my view, a, a capitalist tool. It's a free it's a free market tool. You set rules and then people can drive capital to innovate and, and, and comply. But there, there just hasn't been any appetite from the think tank side of the right to go beyond how do we provide capital to clean energy? There hasn't been a lot of appetite to say, how do we actually view what we want our emissions footprint to be and then implement a program that could facilitate movement to capital? So that's one. Um, two is that most of the money on the right, so whether you're talking about oil industry money, energy company money, uh, most of the money on the right will only give something on climate if it gets something back. So you talked about earlier how you know oil companies are you know more forward leaning on climate than Republican electeds, and that's true. But I think it's only true because they want something. Um, they're willing to take on a tax, which is a known expense, uh, in exchange for waiving liability, which is an unknown risk, right? And any any businessman will take a known uh, expense over an unknown risk because you can plan for that. So I think. On you know the Chamber of Commerce side, on the, the NAM National Association of Manufacturers side, and some of these bigger uh, oil industry companies, if they're serious about approaching climate change in a constructive way, they need to make it clear to their representatives that um, climate is not a, a bartering chip, but it's actually something that they've decided at the board level, at the investor level, at the shareholder level that they want to address and start thinking about productive ways to do that, rather than saying, hey. You can enact a carbon tax as long as you make sure that I've never regulated in any other way. There needs to be an honest discussion. There needs to be some accountability for these companies who put out press releases uh, talking about how, how much they care and, and their actions don't meet that. Because I do think the tail wags the dog. And if these companies start promoting to you know Republican members of Congress and Republican senators that this is something they truly deeply care about and they're going to you know uh, behave as such when it comes to fundraising and, and uh, political activity, I think that'll be really helpful. And then you mentioned Carlos uh, Curbelo and there's, you know, Francis Rooney and, and some others like them. Um, they don't really get a lot of support from the climate community. Right. So they kind of get ostracized by a lot of what you would think of as the political, um, politically active groups on the right, um, groups that finance political activity on the right. They're kind of ostracized because they're standing out there alone talking about climate and clean energy when that's not really something that's the tip, so to speak, on the right. 
But it's not like they're making up that ground on the left. If you go to the League of Conservation Voters scorecard or other places like this, they're still going to say that these people need to be removed from office. I mean, Brandon and I have had this conversation and Brandon says, well, you know, it's great that, that they're pro clean energy, but the most important vote you take is the vote for who's speaker. So they still have to go. So until there's some support on the left and in the let's not even call it the left because the left should want to beat the right in elections until there's consistent support in the environmental community for people who advocate for the environment, whether or not they have an R or a D next to their name, it's going to be really difficult for Republicans, even ones who care deeply about these issues, to go out on a limb because that leads to you losing your job. Uh, no one's going to support you in an election. The, the right's not going to support you. Uh, heavy industry's not going to support you. The oil industry's not going to support you. The environmental community's not going to support you. So I, I think it really is three uh, converging points. And I, I think I rambled a little bit there, but does that does that make sense? Does that resonate at all? Yeah, that makes sense. Can I add my own thoughts on this just from our based on our polling? Yeah, what I've seen. Absolutely. Yeah. So one one thing that I think is really fascinating is that I think that the oil companies have kind of poisoned their own well on the more market friendly to your, you know, they you say they want, uh, you know, a carbon tax, but you know, without the the uh, liability piece, you know, they, I think they were more in favor of cap and trade as well. Um, but the thing that's really ironic is that when those things actually have ended up on the ballot in places like Washington State, uh, or you know, when we were actually having it out about uh, cap and trade here in DC, like, you know, they spent a lot of money to to run ads against those things. They have those ads ready to go for the next time we we have that debate. And ironically, I think now when you see what you see in our polling is that the pu- the public actually wants regulation more than they want you know more market friendly mechanisms like a, a a price or or a cap and trade system, and I think that what has happened, part of the reason why we actually see more support for for regulation rather than sort of market friendly uh, mechanisms, is that the oil companies have succeeded at making the th- very thing that they want to happen less popular. Because when it comes time for it to actually be on the agenda, and there's maybe a more progressive version of it, as we saw in Washington State, you know, they spend big to 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 put it underwater. Um, and so I, I think that there's a weird thing that's happening here where they say they want this one thing, but it's also the very same thing that when it's when it's been on the agenda, you know, they've they've fought it in such a way that it's actually less popular. Um, so there's kind of like a snake eating its own tail element of all this. Two, two quick thoughts on that, because I don't disagree with anything we, that you've said. And, and we, we talk about this internally quite a bit. One is you, you always have more leverage to negotiate when you have something that the other side wants. And so I think big oil really shot themselves in the foot by waiting until climate became a huge issue to try to address it. I think, you know, had 10 years ago, they seen the writing on the wall and said, OK, there's going to be some restriction on how much we emit. Let's sit down at the table and have a good faith negotiation about what that looks like and how we can be most economically productive. They would have come up with an outcome that was manageable and and, and something that, that all parties could all sides could handle. They didn't do that. I think that's a huge missed opportunity. You know, second, when you talk about cap and trade, I do think that the mentality of the public, of the investment community, of the global community has shifted far more quickly than people expected. So I think when cap and trade was up, if you were a high emitting industry, your point of view was you can't touch me ever. So I'm going to stop this from happening and there's nothing you can do about it. I think the mindset now is we're going to get touched, whether it's by our investors, whether it's by our board, whether it's by you know global governments, whether it's by local governments, we're going to get hit. So now we want to negotiate the least painful hit. And I think that's the position they put themselves in. And it's difficult to feel a lot of pity because of, because of the way this came about. 
I mean, I think that the reason why part of the reason why I think we actually as progressives should care a little bit more about polling than we have historically, you know, whenever you enter uh, an actual fight for, you know, an actual federal bill, uh, there's going to be ads on television, there's going to be talking heads on TV, you know, talk, uh, saying the, the, the their best, you know, market tested talking points against or for your proposal. And at that point, you know, the margins really, really matter. It is trench warfare, excuse my language. And so the way that we talk about it and the way that we sort of pitch our agenda and what our agenda is really does matter because you want something that's going to be, if we do climate legislation, durable to the inevitable sort of attacks that the capital interests that are aligned against it are going to put out into the world. Uh, and I think that that's something that we have to think about really seriously, because if you take if you take the notion that, you know, capital is a very powerful force in society uh, to its logical conclusion, and you recognize the constraints of the system that we're in, you know, identifying uh, the policies that are popular enough uh, and also effective enough to run the gauntlet that they're going to be put through. If we really have a national debate about this, if millions of millions of dollars are spent. Um, you know, that's that's an important question. It's a really important question. And it's one that you have to really ask if your end goal is to pass laws that make people's lives better and, you know, give our, our planet a better chance at, at, a, at a bright future. Um, and I, I one thing that pains me, I guess, about about the progressive sort of space and movement as it exists right now is that we don't take that portion of it seriously. Like, what would it actually take to get our stuff all the way across the finish line, not just get it into the news, but like get it into law? Super interesting. If you're game, Julian, we'd love to put you on the spot for our final segment. And if you'd rather bow out, that's understandable. But it's called Say Something Nice, where sort of tongue in cheek, a little fun here. We make the Democrat Republicans say something they found redeeming about the opposing party in recent events. So uh, we'll let you go last if you're game to take this on. Are you? Do you have something you could work with? Um, hmm. So one one thing that we did pull as part of this green stimulus stuff, I don't think I shipped it to you guys, uh, was the trillion trees thing. And while I think it's a gimmick and really bad policy, they they you know hats off to the 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 comms and policy people over on the right side of the aisle in figuring out something that would pull through the fucking roof. Um, people love that idea, and. Donald Trump talked about it during his State of the Union, um, and we do at the end of the day probably need to plant some more trees. It's maybe not the most effective way to get the carbon out of the atmosphere, but you know I digress. Uh, and someday we, if we do have a climate conservation corps, they might need to, you know, go out and and do things like plant trees. So if there is a is a way for us to line up the trillion trees gimmick with uh, you know a climate conservation corps style policy, I actually probably wouldn't be against that. And um, you know, again, like this sort of weird game that they play with uh, figuring out uh, bizarro sort of faux policy solutions uh, that are actually incredibly popular uh, seems to be they seem to be very good at that. And the trillion trees thing is is definitely an example in my in my mind. All right. Good one. Brandon, you have a quick one you wanted to say backhanded. Yes. We talked a lot about polling in today's episode. Uh, there was a poll today. Um, about uh, how Republicans view the number of COVID deaths. Um, and so I, I think it's great 
the 60% of Republicans who did not think it's being underreported. <laughs> they really showed Because 40% thought that the number of COVID deaths are are overreported. 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 Yeah. Yes. They don't trust the numbers. They don't trust the numbers. They think that there are are many less COVID deaths than there are. Those people are magical well, thinker, magical thinkers. So uh, I'm glad that at least 60 percent of the Republicans are living in the real world. Shane? Well, now before my backhanded one, I have to take a shot at Brandon. Um, I, I, I'll be quick, but this is actually pretty funny. It's not funny. It's always sad, of course, when, when bad things happen. But there was a newspaper article in Ventura County, which is where I live, and it said there were only two new COVID deaths this week. This was last week, so that's good news, right? Um, two is much less than more than two. And then you continue to read the article. The first was a drug overdose, but they uh, presumed that the individual had COVID. And the second was a 99-year-old man. So I think that's the kind of stuff that, that throws people. That was a real news article. That wasn't The Onion. And you're going, okay, we had two COVID deaths and one of them was a drug overdose. It seems a little confusing. And I, and I do think that that is why people question you know, the data. My, I mean, it's not wrong if nice. that's how they died, but okay, take your point. <laughs> well, no, they died from a drug overdose is what they're saying. But they they're COVID? counting as a COVID death. Okay. This is the news okay. article. This we don't need to litigate opinion. this. We don't need to uh, litigate this. What's your final comment? I'll send it to you guys. And then uh, my say something nice. So a couple of weeks ago, or maybe three weeks ago, I don't remember when, I said something nice about, about Governor Gavin Newsom because I, I appreciated that our state was suffering less than, than other states with similar populations and similar um, you know, dense areas and, and things like that. So now my say something nice will be about Gavin Newsom again, even if just a little bit backhanded. I appreciate him walking himself back on closing the beaches because I am excited to go to the beach this weekend. And I was very nervous when he looked like he was going to close them, but it turns out he only closed them in Orange County and I don't live in Orange County. So thank you, Governor Newsom. To be fair, you know, he doesn't control the virus. So he might want to still practice some social distancing just because they're open doesn't necessarily protect you. Um, I'm going to say something nice about Julian. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We Julian, really appreciate you. Back. Uh, yeah, I'd love to love to come back. Thanks so much for having me on. That's the end of this podcast, which means this is the moment for you to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. We'd also love to interact with you on social media. So reach out to us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. We're also on Instagram at poly underscore climate. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Thanks as always for listening. And until next week.